Hi, everyone. I'm so glad you're here with us at Nova at Home. Please turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 9 today. You know what group glue is? Group glue is any activity. It could be fun, it could be adventurous, it could even be disastrous that bonds families or friends in ways that they're not able to bond naturally. What are some examples of, of group glue? Well, the first one I could think of is camping. Camping is ripe for fun and, and disasters, and especially when the bears visit late at night or, or when you cook your marshmallow for that s'more to a gooey perfection. And then you look up at the stars that are so breathtaking out in the dark, deep woods. Maybe another group glue activity or just long-lasting traditions. These guys are my brothers. They're my best friends. We've known each other for, for 50 years, and we have a 35-year tradition of spending a weekend at the beach together every year. And we've walked through tragedies and triumphs and successes and failures and they know me as well as anyone on the face of this earth. There's also group glue of adventurous experiences. My son Matt and I spend at least one long weekend away a year exploring and fishing the cold, clear waters of the eastern Sierras. And we've done this since he was about 10 years old. And on this trip, we have long talks about life and we eat good food and we catch as many trout as we can. And then there's a group glue of Mexico house building with hands of mercy. And, you know, traveling to Mexico is always an adventure. But building and gifting that house to a family is a treasure for every Nova house builder. And then the group glue of the global health crisis. It's been difficult for most of us, but I'll, I'll never forget the many things God did and the things that God revealed during this time. You know, when family or friends are being glued together, there are some indications of closeness and intimacy developing. Like you're going to have lots of gut-busting laughter, and there will probably be some happy or sentimental tears. There will be memorable meals and shared stories around a campfire, maybe. And there's growing, always a growing close to God and having others experience that same God moment at the same time. And when you have a well-bonded family or well-bonded friends that are glued together, those people know you inside out. Many times you can really get to know someone if you get to know their family and friends. Let's do a quick review of where we're at in our series. Last week, we began a new series on the New Testament book of James entitled Steadfast. We took a brief look at the author, James, the half-brother of Jesus. So instead of just having me preach at you, let's get into some historical context and begin to understand why this letter was written so that we can get a deeper understanding of the New Testament book of James. Let's get to know Jesus' family. And when we get to know the family, you're going to get to know Jesus. We see that there appears to be a lot of group glue act family activity, starting with the miraculous birth of Jesus. And we talked about mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, last week. And we know from the scriptures that there were at least four brothers and two sisters. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55, it says, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude? Aren't all his sisters with us? 
So what was it like to grow up in the family with a brother like Jesus? In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, we see what Jesus' family thought about him and his work. And some of you might be thinking the same. When his family heard about what Jesus was teaching, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And then in Mark chapter 6, Jesus comes back home, and a crowd gathers, and it looks like his family is in that crowd as Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. And the crowd was amazed, but some people started to criticize. In verse 1, it says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son or the brother and the brother of James, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, in his own home. In John chapter 7, we see Jesus' brothers giving him some advice. They tell Jesus that he should go to the big cities where the crowds are to do his work. It sounded like advice, but it really was criticism. In verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about, uh, go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of the tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe him. And then we read in Acts chapter 1, and you can observe here the group glue in the family of Jesus. We see a change that takes place in the family after the resurrection of Jesus. In verse 12, it says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, maybe those are the sisters, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The brothers and mother, and maybe sisters, were among the first believers. They were the first Christians. You know, when someone asks you, how do you know that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? You can go a number of ways. You can go with a cover-to-cover biblical story of redemption that points to Jesus. Or you can go with the words of the ancient prophets who wrote about the one who would come and bring forgiveness and restoration for all humankind. Or you can go with the disciples' witnesses of Jesus, his, his death on the cross and a real face-to-face experience with Jesus after death. Or you can go with James, the brother of Jesus. James, the younger half-brother of Jesus, knew Jesus as well as anyone. And Jesus makes a special appearance to his little brother. And James believes and becomes the pastor of the mother church in Jerusalem. And later, has his life brutally taken from him because he refuses to stop telling people that his older brother was the Son of God. And when you know that, you know that the resurrection is true. 
And he begins his letter with just a real simple statement. James, a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about the purpose of suffering. And here's God's word for us today, starting in verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Today, Let's talk about this. Let's talk about getting a perspective on your net worth. And number one, the first point is, don't be arrogant about it. In verse nine, we read, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. As you stand steadfast in the midst of trials and suffering, and as you ask for wisdom from God without doubting, some of you are experiencing humble circumstances. Are you in a humble, humbling circumstance today? Whether it's a physically humbling circumstance or a financially humbling situation or a relationally humbling issue. There are so many of us in a humble circumstance today. And whether you're part of the Nova family or the Gateway Church or Momentum Christian Fellowship family, or you're just watching right now because someone shared Nova at home with you, especially during these last few months of the Safer at Home order, I've had some days where I've experienced some low lows that put me in a humble circumstance. But James, what do you mean by taking pride in my humble circumstance? Well, let me ask you, how do you find value in your life? Do you find value by what you have, like your title or your position or your bank account or your portfolio or just your stuff? Well, that does not define who you are. So if you've gone through the trial of a humbling circumstance, James says, Take pride in your high position. You see, James, we see it throughout his book. He weaves in this idea as he writes about this in his letter. And he encourages Christ's followers to know who they are and what their position in Jesus is. You see, your net worth has nothing to do with your self-worth. Many times when we go through humbling trials and troubles and suffering, our self-worth comes into question. And James says, when you go through humble circumstances, remember your high position. In John chapter three, in First John chapter three, verse one, it says, "See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God." We are called children of God because Jesus, James's older brother, humbled himself to the point of death to be in the highest position and to transform every humiliating circumstance in your life into a high place. James says that we tend to get so caught up in our trials that affect our net worth that we forget our real self-worth and our real value. So number one, don't be arrogant about it. Number two, don't put your hope in it. Don't put your hope in it. In verses 10 and 11 of our text, it says, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away 
even while they go about their business. When we talk about the rich, we always think about the other guy. There's always someone else that has more. There's always someone else that's a little bit richer. But when James is talking about the rich, who's he talking to? It begins with a you and it ends with an us. It's us. He's talking to us. You have running water. And if you have running water and electricity and a place to live and a computer, you're among the top 15% of the richest in the world. You might not think of yourself as rich, but you are most likely far away from the poverty of the world. If you take a high position in what you have worked for and what you have saved for and what you have invested in, man, that's fleeting. It's going to pass away. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world. Now, who are the rich? Yeah. It's us. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Paul doesn't say, give it all away or feel guilty and bad if you've got a lot. Paul says, if you're rich, don't put your hope in your riches. You know, I love what the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah says about all of this in Jeremiah chapter 11. In verse 23, he says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Those of you who are smart, intelligent, and well-educated, don't boast in that. Those of you who are strong and beautiful and, and swole, don't boast about that. Those of you who are successful and rich and have a lot of stuff, don't boast about that. But this is what you can boast about, that you have an understanding to know God, and that's what you boast about. So number one, don't be arrogant about it. Number two, don't put your hope in it. And number three, be generous and willing to share it. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, it says, Command them. Now who's them? It's us. It's the rich. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. I love what Jesus says about treasures in Matthew chapter 6. In verse 19, he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, there's an old saying, you can't take it with you. And Jesus says, yes, you can. And I hope you take a lot with you. Some people say, you'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Well, kids, maybe you should ask an adult what a hearse is because I'm not sure if you know what that is. Jesus says, you can be rich and stockpile your riches and put it all away. Just make sure it's in the right account. If you're only rich for this earthly life, you're going to die without riches. But if you're storing up riches in heaven, when you die, you'll go to your riches. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19 says, 
In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And I've been so encouraged by people in the Nova family being steadfast in their generosity. Many of you who have continued to work through the pandemic know that some of the Nova family have been furloughed or are not working right now. So what you're doing is you're giving extra in your tithe to beef up the general fund and giving to the benevolence fund to help people who are hurting financially. And you, you are the best example of being a healthy, generous, and steadfast church family. When we talk about group glue that can bring family and friends close, we've all experienced this in the global health crisis. And as tough as this last few months has been, there have been so many opportunities to bond with one another. You know, trials bring on stress. And stress can lead you to think about trusting God more or to think about only yourself. So how are you doing? Are your humble circumstances leading you to grow in your trust in God and leading you to look around to see how God wants, you to, wants to use you to love others? You know, I'm gonna leave you today with a benediction. It's two words. Bene, like where we get the word benefit, means good. And diction, where we get our word dictionary, means word. It's a good word from James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that steadfast person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.